Welcome to Rental Equip Talk Radio with your host, Donald Charbonnet. This is the radio program designed for industry insiders, as well as anyone interested in getting into the rental equipment industry. Now, here is Donald Charbonnet. And how y'all doing? I am your host, Donald Charbonnet, broadcasting live from hot and humid New Orleans. How's the world of rental doing today? How's your utilization? What are you doing about it? I hope all those on the East Coast have taken their uh, emergency plans into action. As always, keep your thoughts and prayers coming for anyone in the way of Hurricane Dorian. This is a bad one and is devastated, as you all know, parts of the Bahamas. With hurricanes, you always need to have an emergency plan in place. With this crazy weather, we never know what or where something will hit. The American Rental Association has done some great work in this area of emergency preparedness. Now, a big thank you to all our listeners. Uh, I hope you enjoyed last week's show about defining success, collective leadership, and essential management. Last week, we had 1,270 listeners tune in, plus several hundred more listeners listened to some of the older podcasts. And today's a very special day for me because today we celebrate one year of Rental Equip Talk Radio. So thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in let me know if you like it or not, because the numbers are okay. The call-in number is 1-866-472-5790. And please let me know if there's a certain guest or subject you'd like to uh, have discussed in the show, and I'll do my best to get them. And as always, you can reach me at rentalequiptalkradio at gmail.com, or you can actually call, a live call to me, or text me at 504 615 So for today's topics, performance reviews, should you do them? What about self-assessment and accountability? And how about a term called imposter syndrome? So let's start off with performance reviews. Should you do performance reviews? A recent survey based on input from a thousand plus managers, here's what to consider if you're thinking about doing performance reviews. Should I do performance reviews? A manager recently wrote this to me. We'd arrived at the middle of the year already, and he was curious if he should kick off bi-yearly performance reviews with his team. Performance reviews are a peculiar relic of our work lives. It's this thing we believe the big, serious companies seem to do a thing we've been told is a standard management practice. But perhaps you've gotten word from colleagues or friends at other companies that performance reviews are less in vogue these days and marked less effective. And perhaps, as this manager who was writing to me, you feel that if you decided not to do them, you're a little stuck about what to do instead. So you ask yourself, The same question this manager did. Should you do performance reviews? And if so, what are the best practices? And if not, what should you do instead? In order to answer these questions, let's first examine the purpose of a performance review to begin with. Ultimately, these fixtures and organizations were created because we, as managers, are accountable for our team's performance. Performance reviews were intended as a mechanism 
to help our team perform well. We must keep this in mind. At the heart of things, the intention behind performance reviews are meaningful. To encourage performance positively and to help ensure the outcome you both want for the team is achieved. If the goal behind performance reviews is anything other than that, because other companies do them, then, well, you really should stop wasting your time. That being said, the question becomes, how do you best encourage performance positively and help ensure the outcome you both want for the team is achieved? Do performance reviews or something else best fulfill that function? Consider this. I found a couple of surveys from the online leadership community called The Water Cooler with a thousand plus managers from all over the world to see how they answered those questions. And here's what they said. Do you do performance reviews at your company? Most said, not really. Why? Annual performance reviews are cumbersome and lack agility. No one dreads annual review time now, and feedback is more in the flow. Less intensive, more regular check-ins create a framework that makes performance management more natural. Should we get rid of the annual performance review? Hmm, great question. What managers do instead? Lightweight, meaningful check-ins twice a year, combined with regular one-on-one meetings. Use every fourth, say, one-on-one meeting as a time to talk about performance instead of the traditional of the traditional performance review cycles. It's also what can be done internally to know your team better. Full annual review once a year and also a lightweight check-in mid-year. Lightweight check-in every three to four months, performance goals, strengths, areas for improvement, and what the person should learn in upcoming months are discussed. This conversation is intentionally different from regular one-on-one meetings, where we talk about day-to-day work, roadblocks, etc. Four months cadence of performance reviews where the output is two documents. One, a document that both the manager and the employee agree on that goes to HR. And two, a personal goal page with smart goals on internal blog where they can track their progress for the next four months. And also, Salary adjustments are completely separate from the performance review and is handled by HR, though performance certainly plays into this. So some tips for for performance reviews. Managers should really act as coaches. The team works best when managers are viewed as coaches and more experienced peers to help employees with their career development. Next, have a clear agenda. Oftentimes, employees don't know that they can use these meetings 
to talk about things that they need coaching on that relate to their career. Next, don't time performance reviews to pay increases or decreases. Have this be a separate conversation. There's a Harvard Business Review article that discusses this a lot more in depth. Next, separate peer feedback from reviews. It's important to make easier for peers to give feedback regularly. One water cooler member does this in video form. That's a little crazy. Ask specific questions to better understand where the person is at uncover blind spots, etc. This ought to take up about 70% of the time. How about high output management by Andy Grove? There's great tips on how to run good one-on-one meetings. Also, bring up topics that would be hard to talk in a bigger group. And don't wait for the meeting to give critical feedback. Tools like recurring surveys in Know Your Team can nudge employees in the right direction. Regardless of whether or not you end up doing performance reviews or some hybrid of what water cooler members suggested here, I hope you keep in mind the original thrust behind performance reviews. The goal here is to positively encourage performance. So, how are you best at doing that? And if you don't do performance reviews, have you ever had employees do a self-assessment? Managing yourself. How to calibrate your own strengths and weaknesses. Smart self-assessment plus clearly defined requests for feedback can prevent what's called imposter syndrome and being caught off guard by hidden weaknesses. Anytime you change jobs, the transition could be hard. A few weeks in, you may find yourself overwhelmed by every little thing. Your mind may feel like the aftermath of like a fourth grade volcano project, all thick and sticky and slow. When you're at home, you think about work, And when you're at work, you think about home. The inability to focus becomes a source of debilitating stress. If you're coming in as a manager or management position, you may feel the need to fix everything. You begin listing off one tangled issue after another. Areas that were desperately understaffed, people who wanted a change in their roles, a product strategy you may not agree with, and so on. You want to unravel each problem until they are simple, soft balls of yarn, so to speak, ready to be re-knit with purpose. And you may think about your past and the road you've taken to get here. You want to think about the future, the way, way future. Think nothing about the specific problems at hand. Instead, think about how you worked. What were your perceived strengths and weaknesses? In what ways did you impress or annoy those around you? 
what was your management style like? As much as you try to tell yourself that your inner turmoil lives inside your own head, the truth is that most of us aren't very good actors. People know. They see the faults that you don't want to admit. Like how your anxiety can lead to wishy-washy decisions. Can you calibrate your own internal compass? Can you understand where your fears are overblown? Nobody can but you. And are you setting clear expectations for yourself and others? Once you knew where you stand, you can start moving forward. Being a great manager is a highly personal journey. And if you don't have a good handle on yourself, you won't have a good handle on how to best support your team. No matter what obstacles you face, you first need to get deep with knowing you, your strengths, your values, your comfort zones, your blind spots, and your biases. When you fully understand yourself, you know where your true north lies. And additionally, I think everybody feels like an imposter sometimes. You know, I first learned the term imposter syndrome many years ago. A professor studying gender differences stood in front of a packed lecture hall, citing example after example that gave me shivers. Yes, this describes exactly how I feel. I don't deserve to be here in this auditorium at this dazzling institution with so many brilliant students. I must have gotten here by error or luck or grace of the stars. When are they going to go figure out that I'm not, (laughs) that I got good grades because I have a good memory, not because I'm actually smart? As a new manager, you may have felt this way countless times as well. You may think, I have no idea what I'm doing. My inner voice could whisper every time you fumbled an interaction or struggled to make a decision. But over the years, you've learned a secret that bears repeating. Every manager feels like an imposter sometimes. Every manager was once new, stumbling through interviews and in awkward conversations. It's so common that instead of pretending like we're all ducks gliding effortlessly on the surface of the water, you should own up to the furious paddling that's happening underneath. Imposter syndrome is what makes you feel as though you're the only one with nothing worthwhile to say when you walk into a room full of people you admire. Imposter syndrome is what makes you double, triple, or quadruple check your email before hitting send so that nobody finds any mistakes and figures out you're actually a fraud. Imposter syndrome is the sensation that you're teetering along the edge of a sheer cliff with flailing arms, the whole world watching and waiting to see if you fall. Here's the thing to remember. Feeling this way is totally normal. 
You ask any new manager about the early days of being a boss. Indeed, ask any senior executive to recall how he or she felt as a new manager. If you get an honest answer, you'll hear a tale of disorientation and, for some, overwhelming confusion. The big role didn't feel anything like it was supposed to. It felt too big for any one person to handle. Why does imposter syndrome hit managers so hard? There's a couple of reasons. The first is that you're often looked to for answers. You may get reports, tell you about different personnel issues, and ask for your advice. You may have gotten requests for permission to do things that the company has never done before. Like maybe spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on some new initiative. When the sailing gets rocky, the manager is often the first person others turn to. So it's common to feel an intense pressure to know what to do or say. When you don't, you naturally think, am I cut out for this job? The second reason is that you're constantly put in the position of doing things you haven't done before. For example, say you got to fire somebody. How do you prepare yourself for such a task? It's not like improving your skills in drawing or writing, where you can invest time on nights and weekends to sketch or compose short stories. You can't just snap your fingers and say, I'm going to practice firing a lot of people this month. You must actually go through the real thing in order to gain the experience that you need. Management isn't an innate skill. There's no such thing as an all-around great manager who can transition effortlessly between different leadership roles. You must look at the specific context. For example, I consider myself a seasoned manager, but if I were to lead a team that was, say, triple the size or in a discipline I don't really know well, like who knows what, I'd probably fail to produce strong results immediately. I'd need to identify my growth areas in that environment, such as how to communicate effectively with a much larger group of people, or how to set goals and spend time honing those skills. No matter how often imposter syndrome rears its ugly head, it doesn't have to derail you. In these next sections, we'll look at techniques for how to deal with the inevitable doubts and discomfort that can arise. So, get to brutal honesty with yourself. Get a few facts about you. Were you more comfortable in a small group than big ones? Do you care deeply about understanding first principles? Are you more articulate in writing than in person? You need time alone to reflect and process new facts before forming an opinion. You skew toward long-term thinking, which means that you sometimes make impractical, short-term decisions. At the end of the day, nothing gives you more satisfaction 
in learning and growing. Why does any of this matter? Because these strengths and weaknesses directly affect how you manage. Different people have completely different superpowers. Among the people you work closest with, one has an ability to take incredibly complex topics and transfer them into easy-to-remember frameworks that get at the heart of what really matters. Another one's strategic prowess is so strong that you're convinced he must have been a five-star general in past life. And one amazes you with the way they manage to keep 20 threads moving full steam ahead at the same time. Quite a juggler. Yet these same folks have told you there are things you do that they admire as well. The facets of our personality are like the ingredients that come together for a recipe. The key is to understand what works best with what you have to work with. The world's top leaders come from vastly different molds. Some are extroverts, like Winston Churchill, and some are introverts, like Abe Lincoln. And some are demanding, say like Margaret Thatcher, and others remind you of a favorite relative, like Martha Teresa. Some leave a room breathless with their vision, like Nelson Mandela, and others prefer to avoid the spotlight, like none other than Bill Gates. The first part in understanding how you lead is to know your strengths, the things you're talented at and love to do. This is crucial because great management typically comes from playing to your strengths rather than from fixing your weaknesses. There are some useful frameworks for understanding your strengths. If you want to do a quick version, jot down the first thing that comes to mind when you ask yourself the following questions. How would people, how would the people who know and like me best, like family, significant others, or close friends, how would they describe me in three words? My answer would be thoughtful, enthusiastic, and driven. Next question. What three qualities do I possess that I'm the proudest of? My answer, curious, sensitive, and optimistic. Next question. When I look back on something I did that was successful, what personal traits do I give credit to? My answer, vision, determination, and humility. And lastly, what are the top three most important pieces of positive feedback that I've received from my manager or peers? My answer is that I'm principled, I'm a fast learner, and a long-term thinker. Like mine, your responses will likely cluster around a few themes. Here you can see that my strengths are dreaming big, learning quickly, and remaining upbeat. What are yours? Remember them and hold them dear. You'll be relying on them time and time again. The second part of getting to an honest reckoning with yourself 
It's knowing your weaknesses and triggers. So right beneath your list of strengths, answer these following questions. Whenever my worst inner critic sits on my shoulder, what do they yell at me for? My answer, worrying too much about things going right, not voicing loudly enough what I believe, and I'm way too trusting. And next, if a magical fairy were to come and bestow on me three gifts I don't have yet, what would they be? (laughs) My answer, more confidence in others, clarity of thought, and incredible persuasion. Next question. What are three things that trigger me? A trigger is a situation that gets me more worked up than it should. My answer is sense of injustice, those who don't use common sense, and people with inflated egos. And lastly, what are the top three most important pieces of feedback from my manager or peers on how I could be more effective? My answers, be more direct, trust others to get their job done, and explain things simply. Again, you may see some themes emerging, but you have to answer your own questions. Okay, now, now that you got your list, the next part is calibration, which is making sure that the view we have of ourselves matches reality. This is harder than it sounds. Our self-perception is like a roller coaster. Some days we struggle with self-compassion. We make a mistake and our inner critic chirps loudly about how we're worthless. Other days we think we're the best thing since sliced bread. There's even a term to describe the cognitive bias where people who aren't actually very skilled have a tendency to think they're better than they really are. And it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Calibration matters because it doesn't do me any good to think that I'm one thing when the world views me as another. For example, if I believe I'm an amazing public speaker, but everyone else thinks my talks are tedious, I might make a bad decision like choosing to present a bold new idea myself instead of asking someone who could probably sell it better. Even worse people will start to discount what I say because they'll conclude that I've got a warped sense of reality. So to develop our self-awareness and to calibrate our strengths and weaknesses, we must confront the truth of what we're really like by asking others for their unvarnished opinions. The goal isn't to seek praise. The goal is to give our peers a safe opening where they can be honest even brutally honest, so that we can get the most accurate information in the same way that you gather feedback for your reports, you can learn about yourself through some of the following tactics. And you have to ask your manager to help you calibrate yourself through a series of questions that we'll go through here in just a couple of minutes. So, so far, we've covered some Pretty crazy terms like uh, you know, imposter syndrome. We've talked about self-assessment, and we've talked about performance reviews. 
And so I hope that uh, through all of that, you've gained some insight of, uh, I guess it's really like self-reflection in so many terms, but it's not an easy thing to do to ask others to uh, tell you how they feel about you. So with that, let's take a, a, a break, and go back to Voice America, and when we come back, we will continue talking about the subject of calibration. Back to you, Voice America. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Genie Z60 slash 37FE Boom Lift is at the forefront of true hybrid technology. It is actually two machines in one that can be used for both indoor and outdoor applications. The Genie difference is a lower cost of operation and cleaner performance. The Genie 60-37FE Boom Lift is more fuel efficient, driven by high-efficiency AC motors, which means lower emissions too. Check out the Genie FE difference today. Visit GenieLift.com. Genie Genuine Parts undergo testing on long-term durability and reliability, which means higher equipment resale values and warranties for you. You don't want to waste time and money on generic parts or even counterfeit parts, especially in the long run. Genie Genuine Parts are factory fitted and field tested to the highest of standards, which means more machine uptime. We also have free ground freight on orders of $750 or more from our two parts warehouses. Go to genielift.com to find out more. Have you tried the new generation of Genie XC Booms? The XC stands for extra capacity, and with new technology in the design, the Genie XC Booms carry a higher load with dual capacity capability, compliant to global industry standards. Save time while you increase productivity. The new Genie XC Booms are common in design, parts, and accessories for easier servicing. For more information about the Genie family of XC Boom Lifts, visit genielift.com. That's genielift.com. Genie Aerial Pros is one of the most comprehensive industry websites focused on safety and standards, service, and new products and applications. The Genie Aerial Pros site features experts in aerial and rental markets with five decades of experience and shared knowledge. You'll also get information on upcoming industry and company events, videos, training, and more. The Genie Aerial Pros website is available on a wide variety of platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, or through our own website at genielift.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. This is Rental Equipped Talk Radio with Donald Charbonnet. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to rentalequiptalkradio at gmail.com. That's rentalequiptalkradio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. And welcome back, and thank you for joining me in this uh, one-year anniversary of Rental Equipped Talk Radio. And today we've been talking about performance reviews, and if you don't do that, do your people do self-assessments? And with that, uh, sometimes uh, everybody feels like they're an imposter when you do self-assessments. So sometimes you got to get brutally honest with yourself. And when we took a break, we were just talking about the subject of calibration. And the comment I was making is that to develop 
our self-awareness, and to calibrate our strengths and weaknesses, we must confront the truth of what we're really like by asking others for their unvarnished opinions. And that goal isn't to seek praise. The goal is to give our peers a safe opening where they can be honest, even brutally honest. And that can be a little dangerous and touchy, uh, but if you got the guts, go for it. So ask your managers to help you calibrate yourself through some of these types of questions. What opportunities do you see for me to do more of what I do well? What do you think are the biggest things holding me back from having a greater impact? What skills do you think a hypothetical perfect person in my role would have? And for each skill, how would you rate me against that ideal on a scale of one to five? You know, you can pick three to seven people who you work closely with and ask if they'd be willing to share some feedback to help you improve. Even if your company already has a process for 360 degree feedback, it really helps to be specific about what you want to know and to provide reassurances that you're looking for honesty, not just passing the bat. Take this example. Hey, I value your feedback and I'd like to have a more effective team member. Would you be willing to answer the questions below? Please be as honest as you can, because that's what will help me the most. I promise nothing you will say will offend me. Feedback is a gift, and I'm grateful for your taking the time. So here's some examples of different things that you might ask. On our last project together, in what ways did you see me having impact you think I could have done to have more impact? With my team, what am I doing well that you'd like to see me do more of? What should I stop doing? One of the things I'm working on is being more decisive. How do you think I'm doing on that? Any suggestions on how I can be better here? So you have to ask for task-specific feedback to calibrate yourself on specific skills. For example, if you're not sure how good of a public speaker you are, follow up with a few people after you give a presentation and say, I'm hoping to improve my speaking skills. What do you think went well with my presentation? What would have made it twice as good? You know that asking for feedback is hard. You might have read the suggestions above and cringed when thinking about doing them. And, you know, it can take years before you get comfortable asking for feedback from others outside of formal reviews where you had to. Why? It goes back to the imposter syndrome because you constantly worry that you aren't good enough. It takes a certain amount of confidence to ask for critical feedback. For some, their breakthrough may come when you realize you needed to change your mindset. If you saw every challenge as a test of your worthiness, then you'd constantly worry about where you stood rather than how you could improve. You know, it's kind of like you're stressing out more about your exam grade than about whether you're actually learning the concepts that are being taught. On the other hand, if you approach challenges with the belief that you could get better at anything if you put in the effort, then the vicious cycle of anxious self-evaluation would be broken. No matter how good or bad you are at any particular skill, 
the notion that it's within my power to improve has allowed you to approach learning with curiosity instead of apprehension. And the rewards can be tremendous. You would never have known that your feedback was often vague and hand-wavy had you not invited that comment from a colleague. Once you heard it, you were able to work on making your points more precise and actionable. And now that's praise as one of your strengths. So long, why do we do these performance reviews and these self-assessments? With that, there's got to be some change. And with change, you've got to be accountable. There are some articles out there on passive voice in the workplace that look at this from the perspective of an individual managing their own career. They make the case that passive voice might be holding back your career and that if you use the active voice more, you'll be seen as someone who takes responsibility for their mistakes and will take charge of a situation. I would actually caution against this as a general career advice and it really depends on the company as this would not have worked very well in some circumstances. In some environments, you wouldn't want to be the only person raising your hand for blame when everyone else was ducking for cover. As much as corporations want to talk about failure being okay, this is still not something that is rewarded, nor is it something you want to be seen doing. But look, I'm not concerned about survival strategies in large dysfunctional corporations anymore. And if you're not either, ditch the passive voice. This will help you. You got to assign ownership, got to take accountability, or even blame if necessary. Got to avoid confusion. You got to get things done. The bottom line, if you have a startup or a small business, try to make the active voice a conscious part of your culture. And we've talked a lot about culture over the, the last number of months. Be clear about who's doing what and who is responsible. As soon as a passive voice creeps in, you're becoming corporate with all of the shiftiness and lack of accountability that comes with it, and that'll slow you down. So avoid the blame game. Be accountable for accountability. Accountability is among the top two or three concerns of senior management. Accountability has various definitions, but the word is usually used to denote personal responsibility for getting desired results. It's an admirable idea, and all good managers and leaders want their people to be accountable. Of course, accountability doesn't apply only to rank and file employees. Managers and leaders should be accountable for holding others accountable. After all, isn't getting good results with and through other people the very reason we have managers and leaders? And so there's something called the, the accountable ladder. And I'm going to talk at length about each one, but at the bottom is you're unaware and unconscious. The next step up is blaming others. Then you go to personal excuses. And then I can't. And about midway through, you're at the wait and hope stage. These are victim behaviors that happen to you. And then accountability behaviors, things that happen because of you, 
is that the next rung on the ladder is acknowledge reality, embrace it, find solutions, and finally, make it happen. At the lowest rung of the ladder, people are simply unaware or unconscious. They don't even know there's a situation that needs attention. The next rung on the ladder is the blame others level. Here's where we see a lot of finger pointing. When something goes wrong or fails to go right, people at this level are quick to censure their colleagues. This is the behavior we frequently saw on The Apprentice, Donald Trump's television show in which young professionals fought it out for a big job. Rather than fixing the problems, most of the contestants invested their energy in fixing blame. And then just above the blame others wrong on the ladder of accountability are the personal excuses and I can't levels. The behavior we see here is sort of an adult version of, hey, the dog ate my homework syndrome. People talk themselves into believing for a wide range of imaginative reasons that they are simply unable to accomplish the task at hand. It's never their fault, of course, because they genuinely believe they are controlled by circumstances. Next, we have the wait and hope level. Although waiting and hoping are better than blaming and making excuses, this is still a mindset that places the obligation for results on someone else. In fact, all the behaviors on these lower rungs on the ladder of accountability are victim behaviors. People who languish at these levels of performance or non-performance seem to believe that things happen to them. At the acknowledged reality level, people at least have their heads out of the sand. They see the situation for what it is, sort the facts from the fiction, and accept the certainty that something needs to be changed. An even higher rung on the ladder is the embrace it level. People operating at this level admit their own role in the problem, then accept ownership of the situation. People who psychologically own a problem are much more likely to solve it than people who merely acknowledge that a problem exists. The symptoms of psychological ownership are intense interest, passion, determination, and the persistent investment of energy. Psychological ownership reminds us of the old joke about ham and eggs. The chicken is merely involved, the pig is truly committed. Just above the embrace it level is the find a solution wrong on the ladder of accountability. Solutions are spawned by commitment to results. And the highest rung on the ladder of accountability is the make it happen level. People who operate at this level don't just talk about results, they get results. Their commitment is relentless. I didn't say ruthless, I said relentless. These make it happen people sometimes make the hand ringers uncomfortable. They not only tend to think outside the box, they often refuse to accept the notion that the box even exists. They don't take no for an answer. They gain special satisfaction in solving problems that others regard as impossible are just too difficult. 
they're worth their weight in gold because they know that things happen because of them, not to them. This is not to suggest that make it happen people are renegades or organizational vigilantes. They not only feel accountable for results, they feel accountability for their actions. Good make it happen people are very big on mutual respect, mutual purpose, and of course, with mutual respect and mutual purpose comes a willingness to account for one's own performance, and this includes accepting responsibility for personal performance shortfalls, as well as accepting credit for personal performance triumphs. So when performance accountability is important, and when is it not, a good place to start is with open and honest conversation about mutual purpose and mutual expectations. expectations. What does great performance look like to you? What does it look like to the person to whom you're delegating? What are your mutual expectations on deliverables, timelines, budgets, and all the other parameters of the task? Where, when, and how will the accountability sessions occur? So I want to go back and I want to climb the ladder with you. And by that I mean, let's start at the bottom and just repeat this because the first half are the victim behaviors. And so which class do you fall into? You start at the bottom and you're unaware or you're unconscious. Then you take a step up and you're very quick to blame others. And then the next rung up is personal excuses. And then you take another step up and see, I can't rung on the ladder. And you get about midway up, and we talk about victim behaviors, things that will happen to you, it's you wait and hope, almost to the point of letting somebody else figure it out instead of you. And as you cross that threshold, the accountability behaviors of things that happen because of you, you've got the acknowledged reality rung on the ladder. Then you've got the embrace it rung on the ladder. And then you find solutions. That means you're very involved with the project and you're getting into the meat and potatoes of what's right and what's wrong. And finally, you get to the make it happen. You're at the top of the ladder, and you're so involved with the project that you come up with solutions that will help you along the way. So again, what does great performance look like to you? What does it look like to the person to whom you're delegating? What are your mutual expectations or deliverables, timelines, budgets, and all the other parameters of the task. Where, when, and how will the accountability sessions occur? Consistently, effective managers and leaders find that it helps to be explicit about what kind of performance they stand for 
or what kind of performance they will not stand for. And they are accountable for holding others accountable. So we've kind of taken you through a different chain of events here today. It started out with performance reviews. And I'm sure the larger the company, the more the review process becomes, I guess, a necessary evil. As I see different positions have different levels, like inside sales one or inside sales two or uh, salesman in training or different things like that. And how do you get to those other levels? Uh, sometimes these have to come in the form of performance reviews. But just as important as that is looking in the mirror and saying, let me assess myself and let me ask some of my peers. And I, am I in the uh, imposter syndrome, so to speak, to say that I'm really doing something that I'm not qualified to do, and how do others view me in that role? And then I'm being effective. And let's face it, the reason for these performance reviews and this uh, self-assessment is so that people will be accountable for all the actions and the tasks that we ask them to do on a day-to-day basis. And it starts at the top, and it trickles through the entire organization. And it's a, uh, I guess, time-sensitive, time-consuming task that companies have to go through in order to be sure that they have the right people in the right place. And that comes from digging up cultures we've talked about in the past, and are they part of the culture that you really want for guess who? End of the day, it's all about your customers. Where does your revenue come from? So all these things, you know, to me, at the end of the day, just mean that we're trying to build a better company with the right team of people that will listen to the constructive ideas that a manager or management may have. And again, I always mean that, uh, be it an owner, a regional manager, a branch manager, a sales manager, a service manager, or even someone who manages the yard. They all have to have these certain traits that they'll fulfill in order to do their jobs properly. So, does your company do performance reviews? Is it a long, drawn-out process? Or do you take time on a regular basis just to sit down with your folks in one-on-ones and just talk about business, family, what they see right, what they see wrong? Are you receptive to their ideas that come out in these meetings? And it's got to be a two-way street along the way. It can't just be management pushdown because The folks that are in the trenches every day have probably more ideas than they could shake a stick at to how to make your business better. So leadership's got to be, I guess, receptive to those ideas. They may not all work, but just hearing someone talk about it and getting their ideas on what's best, uh, the way they see things, and it might be a minor process improvement that they have, but all these things are again part of either the performance review or the self-assessment so that the key word of accountability for the actions that you take in helping to grow and make a company more more successful is uh, the end game in all of this. 
So, I mean, we've talked about everything from branding to culture and different ideas like that along the way over the last uh, number of months. And this is just one more, I guess, uh, uh, spoke in the wheel, so to speak, is another way to make sure that your company is uh, maybe better than the best. Maybe you take the time to talk with your people where other companies may not and just accept the status quo. That's not always the best thing to do. So it's really up to you as to what you want to do to make your company better. And uh, let's face it, there's nothing but good people that make these companies run. And uh, the rental industry has had some of the best people that I've ever known in my life. And I've worked for some good ones. I've worked for some uh, with a <laughs> that I have a different regard for, so to speak. But for the most part, I think people in this industry are great. And uh, Stephen Covey, a uh, well-known speaker, said, accountability breeds response ability. And so remember, if you want to reach me, you can write to me at rentalequiptalkradio at gmail.com, or you can call or text at 504 615 0540. And remember, as always, you can listen on demand after the show. And I have a tremendous following of the weekly activity of the podcast, which, uh, which really makes me feel good that once people find the site, they continue to search for more articles to help make their business better. And as always, I hope some of the issues discussed today either helped or provoked more questions for the success of you and your business along the way. So next week, uh, we'll have another open forum with some more interesting ideas and views that typically come from emails that I receive along the way. Uh, And if you'd like to be a guest, suggest a guest, advertise, or have a question, need a guest speaker, business consultant, or interested in buying or selling your business, I'm here for you. Uh, Today's quote, make yourself accountable and your employees will hold themselves to a high standard. So said a gentleman by the name of David J. Greer. So accountability is the end result for all the things we talked about today, from performance reviews to self-assessments to being accountable. That's what it's all about. Help your company be the best that it can be. Seems like there's a commercial about that. Be the best you can be. So as always, it's, it's been my honor to spend this time with you. I am Donald Charbonnet, your host and the diehard of the rental industry. Uh, have some good news coming in the weeks to come. I'm signing off, and remember, always make time for the things that make you happy to be alive. Hope everyone has a great week, and God bless the souls in the path of Hurricane Dorian. And uh, if you have a chance to send relief to the Bahamas, please participate. Take care. Talk to you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Rental Equip Talk Radio. Be sure to join your host, Donald Charbonnet, next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.